good to see everyone this morning. My name is Ray Sean, and this morning I have the privilege of just leading us in our worship by looking at the Word of God. And as you know, we're going through our series on the, on the drama of redemption. And uh, this week, uh, ultimately what we want to see in this series uh, is the overall redemptive plan of God for His people uh, and how that flows throughout the Bible. And we want to look at that particularly in the book of 1 Kings on this week. And so we want to see, uh, we've seen that so far that God has chosen his people and that he's established them and that he's made a covenant with them. And we want to continue to see how God remains faithful and fulfills his covenant to his people. And we want to see that particularly in the book of 1 Kings as Solomon, uh, the king, David's son and, and David's successor, uh, as he begins his reign and how he begins wisely. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Kings. We'll be in the first four chapters this week. And uh, before, we, before we do that, I want to look at a key passage, one of the passages that Robert mentioned last week, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. Uh, and this passage is central uh, to everything henceforth uh, that we see in the Old Testament. And it's key to what we're going to look at this week in the book of 1 Kings. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, I'll, I'll begin reading that. It says, this is the Lord talking to David through Nathan the prophet. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here we see the Lord talking uh, to Nathan, to, to Nathan, to David through Nathan. And we see that this prophecy is ultimately, ultimately fulfilled in the book of 1 Kings. David has reached the fulfillment of his days and he's aging and he's getting old. So as we look at, at, at Solomon's reign and the beginnings of Solomon's reign, we want to see uh, three particular things today. We want to see the reign of Solomon in, in chapters 1, 1 and 2. We want to see the greatness of Solomon in chapters 3 and 4. And then we'll look at the one greater than Solomon as we, as we close. And so... Today we want to see how this passage that we just saw in in 2 Samuel has everything to do with what's going on right now. We see in the beginning of 1 Kings, we see that David has reached the, the fulfillment of his days. He's, he's getting old and his, his physical body no longer has the strength and the vigor that it, that it once had in order for him to reign successfully as king. So what we see here in the book of 1 Kings is that, uh, is that there's no appointed successor yet. We, see, we know that this passage that we just read in 2 Samuel is talking about Solomon and, and Solomon being the, the successor to David's throne. And David hasn't yet established Solomon as king. So one of David's sons, his oldest son, Adonijah, Adonijah, his oldest son, looks around. He, he sees no one else. He realizes that he's the oldest, so therefore he concludes that he should be the next successor to the throne. He should be the one who takes the throne after David. And regardless of what God has said and what David has said about appointing Solomon, he concludes that he should be king. So in, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, it says that now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. 
So what we see Adonijah does in this passage is he exalts himself to, be, to become king. It says in verse 6 that David never says anything to him about it. He just kind of lets him do his own thing, and Adonijah concludes that he's going to be king. He, he gets 50 men, and he, he gets some horses, he gets some chariots, and he puts together this, this processional, this celebration. He goes and he gets together with uh, some of David's comrades, Joab, who is David's general, and Abathar, who's a priest. And what, what it says here is in verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatted cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all of his brothers, the, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. So he throws this huge celebration for him exalting himself as king. But he, he neglects a few people. It's clear that he probably knows that the Lord has, has appointed Solomon to be king, but he's going to exalt himself as king, and he's going to neglect all of those who are in line with David and with the appointment of Solomon as king. And so he neglects, he neglects Nathan the prophet, he neglects Solomon, he neglects Bathsheba, and he neglects uh, just a, a few others, Benaniah. And so what happens here is that he throws this, this party for himself. He's, he's made himself king, and we go on to see that Nathan and Bathsheba go and approach David individually. And then they approach him together, and they go to him and they say, David, listen, we're not sure what's going on with Adonijah here. If you, if you say you haven't made him king, then uh, we, we thought you said that, that Solomon was your successor. We thought you, that you said you were, were going to appoint Solomon as king. So if so, if that's the case, then why is Adonijah over here setting up his own, his own self as becoming king and kind of making his own party to become king? And so David, uh, we, one of the things that we see throughout this book of the, the book of 1 Kings, we don't see a lot of uh, miracles or powerful splitting of seas or, or crossing rivers or different things like that, but we do see God's sovereign hand continuing to work to fulfill his purpose for his people, even throughout the, the plots and the plans and the schemes and the, even the laziness of, of sinful people. So we see that David, although he hasn't proactively established Solomon as king yet, the Lord's plans and purposes are still fulfilled because he reactively does it. He hears about Adonijah and what Adonijah is doing to set himself up as king, and now he reacts by saying in verse 29, and the king swore saying, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, saying, Solomon... Your son shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne and in my place. Even so, I will do this day. So he's heard about Adonijah. He's heard about what's, what this guy's doing and going to set himself up as king. He says, I'm going to establish Solomon as king today. Uh, I'm going to do it now. Let's do it now. So he, he, he tells Nathan and, and tells Zadok the priest to put, put Solomon on the king's mule and, and ride him down to Gihon. And Gihon is about half a mile outside of Jerusalem. And, and get the people together and have them rejoice at his coming and give Solomon this, this triumphal processional to, into, into Gihon. And once you get there, anoint him as king. Pour the, bring the oil out, anoint him as king, and, and, and make it official. Tell everybody that the king has made it official, that he has established his successor, Solomon. And so what happens is we, we see this, that, that there was this great noise, there was this uproar of noise, and everyone was rejoicing, the people were, were happy, they were singing, because David has appointed his successor Solomon as king. What great news. And so Adonijah, he's, he's got his party going on, he's got his celebration going on, and, and, and he's celebrating himself, and he's got his, his people with him, and he's got his officials and Joab and Abathar with him, and they're all celebrating. And then they hear this noise in the distance. They hear this processional going on. 
And what's happened is he gets wind of this, he gets word of this from, from Jonathan, the son of Abathar, saying, the noise that you're hearing is, is because David has actually appointed a king. He's appointed Solomon as king. He's, he's made it official. So I, I don't know, Adonijah, what, what you're going to do, but we, we find out here that Adonijah and the people at his celebration, at his party, they realize that if the king has made Solomon his successor, then we're, if we are going with, with Adonijah here, then we'll be looked at as offenders. We'll be looked at as those who are going against the king's will and the king's wishes. So they split. They begin to leave. And so Adonijah begins to fear for his life because now he realizes that because David has appointed Solomon as his successor, that he's in the way now. So now he fears for his life. And what he does is he goes into the, to the, one of the holy places and he takes a hold of the horns of the altar, which is recognized in this day as pleading for mercy, pleading for, for grace, forgiveness, saying that I know I've messed up and I need grace. So what Solomon does is he extends him mercy. He, extend, he extends Adonijah, his brother, grace. And he says that if he's, a, if he's a worthy man, then not a hair of his head shall die. And he says this in, uh, in verse 51 and 52, but if, if wickedness is found within him, then he shall surely die. So Adonijah, he, he receives and he's, he's offered this mercy from the king and he goes and he goes back to his house, but we'll, we'll hear, from, hear from him a little bit later. But first, in, in this reign of Solomon, we'll observe these two things. We'll see the obedience of Solomon and then we'll see the justice of Solomon. And in chapter two, we see the obedience of Solomon. Let's read verses one and two. David, he's, he's finally reached his time of fulfillment, his years of fulfillment. And as the scriptures say that he'll go and he'll uh, sleep with his fathers in death. His, his, his time has come to an end, so he calls Solomon to himself and he commissions him. He, he gives him this command. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Be strong and show yourself a man. Be courageous is what some of your translations probably say. Be strong and be courageous. We've, we've heard these words before. We've seen how the Lord and Moses instruct Joshua as he's getting ready to take over for Moses to be strong and be courageous and show yourself a man. Well, how does he do this? Well, it's not by, David doesn't say, Solomon, be strong and be courageous and get ready to, to make your own vision for this kingdom. Get ready to, to make your own precepts and kind of go your own way and whatever you see fit, go ahead and do it. And whatever you desire, go ahead and just follow that. But he says, no, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and his commandments, his rules and all his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and, and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So what's he telling him? We see the obedience of Solomon in this command to, to obey the word of God, to prioritize it, to put it as number one. Solomon is to, to not just, to, to just look at the word of God and to just kind of partially obey, but to, to obey it, to put it as number one, not, at, not to put it beside his will and his desires, but to see God's word and obey it, to follow it. And therefore, when he follows this word, when he holds fast to the commandments and to the word of God, the people will experience prosperity. They will experience peace. They will experience joy because they are in obedience and have a proper perspective of God and his word. Likewise for you and I, this, this command, the, David instructs Solomon and the Lord instructs us to, to be strong and to be courageous and to, to esteem and put as supreme priority God's word. 
If we as God's people are going to live how God wants us to live and receive his joy and receive his grace and his mercy and receive the peace that comes from that, then we must prioritize and put the word of God first and obey it and treasure it and love it and hold to it steadfastly as David is instructing Solomon to do. So we see this in the obedience of Solomon. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, we see that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Solomon loved the Lord and began his reign by walking and obeying the statutes of what David had commanded him here, and obeying the word of the Lord. The second thing that we see of Solomon's obedience, we can see it in, in verses uh, 5 through 9. We see that David, he's got some, some unfinished business. David's got some unfinished business and he's got some enemies in his empire that, that they were his enemies and now they'll become Solomon's enemies and he wants to tell them about it. For whatever reason, David didn't, didn't take care of his unfinished business, but now he, according to his will, he gives it to Solomon and he says, listen, Solomon, some people didn't like my reign and they won't like yours either. I had some enemies, Solomon, and therefore you'll have some enemies, and it's important that these enemies receive justice. It's important that that these enemies receive the justice that they deserve, and he he brings up two, Joab, who is David's general. Joab shed the blood of of two innocent men who were threatening his position, and and David totally wasn't in agreement with this. One thing also that Joab did was Joab killed David's oldest son, Absalom, against the orders and the will of David. So that's probably playing an effect and and a part in on here. But but what we see is that Joab killed two innocent men. And what David says in verse 6 is, you you can hear it, you can feel it in his voice. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. The second enemy of of David's throne, of David's reign, we see is is Shimei. In verse 8, Shimei is one of Saul's relatives, a Benjamite. And Shimei, he says here in verse 8, that Shimei cursed David with a grievous curse on the day when he went to Mahaniam. And David didn't execute the justice that that, that, uh, Shimei deserved. And so he's telling Solomon that Solomon's got to to do the same thing. In verse 9, you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So Solomon is obedient in, 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 in fulfilling and in obeying the, the laws and the precepts, and he's obedient in executing justice. And what we see, and this leads us to the second point, the justice of Solomon. We see here in, in chapter 2, verse 12, and then once again in chapter 2, verse 46, it says that Solomon sat on the throne of his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. How was Solomon's kingdom firmly established here? Well, it happens in, in verses, between verses 12 and verse 46 where we see this execution of justice against the enemies of Solomon. So what happens here in, in chapter 2? We see Adonijah again. Adonijah, he's, he's still bitter. He's still, he's, still kind of, he's still fuming at the fact that the throne is not his. And we see in, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, he goes to Bathsheba and he says, you know that the kingdom was mine. And that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. He, he has no regard at the fact that it was God who appointed Solomon. He doesn't even care. All he can see, he's got this one-track mind of his own ambitions, of his own desires, of his own kingdom. The kingdom was mine, he says. And it's turned about and become, become my brother's for it was from the Lord. He goes to Bathsheba, and so he's, he's still resentful at Solomon. He wants the kingdom, and so he goes to Bathsheba and, and makes this request. He wants Abishag the Shunammite to be his wife. 
says, give me Abishag the Shunammite to be my wife. And we see Abishag in the first chapter, who's, she's a, one of David's concubines. She's acting in a, in a wife-like role to David. And although David doesn't have relations with her or know her in that sense, she's acting as, as a concubine, as one who is a, a, acting like a wife to him in his old age. And so in this, in this culture, in this tradition, what would happen is if someone were to marry one of the, the king's concubines or wives, then they would have a claim to the throne. So we see Adonijah doesn't want Abishag the Shunammite to be his wife because he wants to settle down and get married to her and, and love her forever. He wants another shot at the throne, and this is the way to do it. So he goes to Bathsheba and makes this request, and Bathsheba goes to Solomon and makes this request, and Solomon becomes infuriated. You can see this indignation because he realizes that Adonijah has no respect for his kingship. Adonijah wants to overthrow his kingship, and Adonijah will not submit to his kingship. So he's had enough. And in this domino effect, Solomon begins to go after all of his enemies. He, he goes after Adonijah first and puts him to death because of this, this crazy request, this undermining request that's trying to go after his throne. And then we see he, he's in this domino effect, he goes after those who are just guilty by association. He goes after those who are just guilty by association with Adonijah, and he goes after Abithar, the high priest, and he expels him. And what's interesting is that you'll see that the sovereign hand of God is still at work in the, the plans and purposes because Abathar was related to Eli. And remember back in 1 Samuel, the Lord told Eli that none of his, none of his descendants would be priests or be able to partake of his house and that they'll be cut off? Well, Abathar was a descendant. And so by Solomon expelling Abathar, it fulfills the sovereign purposes of God. And so next we see Joab. Joab, who has killed these innocent men, uh, added, uh, Solomon goes after him now. He goes after Joab and because of what, he done, what he's done. And so Joab goes and runs to the, to the horns of the altar. And, and eventually uh, Solomon puts him to death for the guiltless and, and, the, and, the, and the bloodless things that he, the blood guilty things that he did or against David. So what we see here now is that Solomon, he, he goes on in, in, in this continued domino effect of, of going after and executing swift justice on his enemies. He goes after Shimei. He summons Shimei and he tells him, Shimei, he extends him some mercy. He says, you need to go, go to Jerusalem and find a house and just stay there. Put yourself on permanent house arrest, Shimei. If you ever leave Jerusalem, don't go out for any other reason because if you ever leave Jerusalem, you will die. And if I find out about it, you will die. And so what happens here is that Shimei, although he receives this mercy from Solomon, he, he presumes upon it. He, he doesn't really take Solomon seriously. Kind of like Adonijah, he's, he's not that serious. He's not going to kill me if I, if I leave. So he, Shimei's servants run away. They run away not just outside of town, just a few miles, but they go about 30 miles away and Shimei goes after them. Just neglecting, just, just forgetting about, not even taking seriously the word of the king. He presumes upon his grace and goes after his servant. So as a result, Solomon puts him to death, not because he went after his servants particularly, but because of what Shimei did to David. His deeds came back upon him. So the rooting out of David and Solomon's enemies and Solomon's swift and ruthless execution of justice establishes the precedent for Solomon's reign. We see in verse 46, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Amazing. We see the swift execution of his justice. So for us, the question is for us this morning of, is, is what side of this justice are we on? 
Because Solomon's swift execution of justice, establishing his reign, is only a mirror and a picture of the swift execution of justice which Christ, the true king who will reign forever, does when he establishes his kingdom. See, Jesus, he executes his enemies according to the will of his father. As we see in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that Jesus was made manifest to destroy the works of the devil. Satan's sin and death, Jesus, in establishing his reign, executes his enemies. In John chapter 5, we see that, that Jesus, that he says that all judgment has been given to, him by the, given to him by the Father. All judgment has been given to the Son by the Father. John chapter 3, verse 36, if you and I, if we reject and resist the King and do not receive his grace or presume upon it, we find ourselves standing against it. John chapter 3, verse 36 tells us that John the Baptist is saying, he who believes the Son has life, but he who rejects or, or, or does not believe, the wrath of God remains. So the question for us is, what side of this justice do we find ourselves on? Are we like Adonijah? Are we like, are like Shimei? Are we like Adonijah and that we exalt ourselves and we build our own little kingdoms and we want to make ourselves king of our own hearts? with our own agenda, with our own plans, and with our own purposes, over and above the true king? Are we like Shimei, where we've been extended grace, and yet we just presume upon it because, ah, the king, he, he doesn't mean, he does, he's not really serious. He does, his word isn't, I, I don't, I'm not taking it that seriously. He's not really going to do what he says. Which side of this justice do we find ourselves on? Will we receive mercy? Will we receive the king's grace? Or will we reject it? Or will we resist it and receive punishment as, as, as these did? So what we see here is, is this is the core of the gospel message. This is the very core of, of what the message of the, this is why the gospel is good news. It's because there's a king coming. There's a king whose throne has been established. And Psalm 2 says that God has set his king upon his holy hill. Christ is that king. He's the God-appointed king, and he's coming to establish his reign. And you and I, we've appointed ourselves to be our own kings. We've appointed ourselves, and therefore, we've placed ourselves in the way. We've got our own celebrations going on. We've established, we put 50 people before us and made our own proclamation and, 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 and processional. And, and what happens is this, this king offers us mercy. This king offers us grace and, and peace on his terms. Our response should be to abandon our own makeshift kingdoms, to take off our little Burger King crowns and abandon our, us playing pretend kings, abandon our, our, our kingship and our, our rulership over our hearts and repent and receive the king's mercy and receive the king's grace. John Piper in his book, God is the Gospel, begins by uh, illustrating this, this sort of uh, similar, similar view of Christ's kingship in the Gospel. It says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All rebels, insurgents, dissidents, and protesters against the king. Hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm. Amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid. All debts may be forgiven. All rebellion absolved. All dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down the weapons of rebellion. Kneel in submission. Receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love. Swear fealty to your sovereign and rise a free and happy subject of your king. 
This is the call of the gospel to us to to lay aside our own ambitions to be our own kings, to lay aside our presumption of his grace and presumption of his mercy and esteem his word as the word of a king and submit to his kingship, submit to his lordship. So let's move on. We see next the greatness of Solomon. We see the greatness of Solomon in chapter, chapters 3 and 4. And today, I, I want to convince you that Solomon was a, a great king, that Solomon was a, a great guy. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for us when we look at the scriptures, we see what happens to Solomon. I mean, we all know, and if you don't, you can flip over a few pages and find out fairly quickly. Solomon doesn't end well. But right now, I just want to focus on showing that Solomon began well, that he was a, a great king, that he was a great guy. I was watching this documentary the other day on, on, on the basketball player, Lynn Bias. And the first 30 minutes of the documentary were, were just amazing. We all know that, that he was a, a great athlete, a great person. Everybody, everybody just loved the guy. When you watch the first 30 minutes, you, you, just, you, can't, you can't help but love the guy. But then you just kind of hope and you wish, you just kind of hope that, that, oh, I wish I just didn't know the end. I wish I didn't know how it turned out. So I want us to put ourselves in, in this first 30 minutes of the documentary. I want us to see how great Solomon is, how great a king, how great a guy he is. He's a winner. Let's put ourselves in, in, the, in the people who were at his processional, the, of those who rejoiced and those who were experiencing the great days of Solomon. Just eight quick points on, on why Solomon was such a, a great king. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 24, that he's a king of peace. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3 tells us that he's a king of righteousness. 1 Kings 3, 3 also tells us that he's a king who loves the Lord and is devoted to the Lord. 1 Kings 3, 7 says that he's a humble king. 1 Kings 3, 1 tells us that he's a, a powerful king. He forms alliances with nations. 1 Kings 4, 22, he's a, he's a wealthy king. And 1 Kings 4, 29 through 34 tells us that he's a wise king. He's intellectually brilliant. This guy is great. What, what, just what a conversation you could have sitting down with this guy. Solomon is a great guy. I mean, he's the most interesting man in the world. Forget the commercials. This guy is the real deal. I mean, to have a conversation with this guy. Solomon's greatness is, is characterized and it's marked by his wisdom and his wealth. So let's take a look at the the wisdom of Solomon. We see that Solomon is described in the Bible. If we look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is described in the Bible as the wisest man to have ever lived. 1 Kings 4.29, if you flip over there real quick, it'll give a a short, brief description of what this wisdom was like. He, He possessed wisdom and understanding beyond measure. His breath of mind was like the sand on the seashore. You and I, our our breath of mind might be like one of those little Tyco dump trucks that fills up with sand. But Solomon, his breath of mind was like the sand on the seashore. I mean, this guy was, I mean, it it was just beyond. His wisdom surpassed entire nations of people. His wisdom, it was, it was, he was wiser than anyone in his day. His wisdom was from God, ultimately. 1 Kings 4.32 says that Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and, and the Song of Songs are all attributed to Solomon's authorship. So this means that he was wise about essentially almost everything. He was wise about daily matters of life, practical matters. He's a, he was wise about nature. He was wise about biology, romance, money, manhood, womanhood, everything. 
First Kings chapter 3, verses 6 through 9 give us sort of the beginnings of this wisdom. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Verse 6 says, verse 4 and 5 tell us that God appeared to, in a dream to Solomon. And, 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 and this is how this wisdom originated. He appeared to a dream in Solomon and says, ask. Ask for, for whatever you want. Ask for it. We see the, the graciousness and the generosity of God in coming to Solomon, because, not because of anything he's done, but because, because God is generous and gracious. Ask for whatever you want. We see here Solomon's response, and Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this day this great and steadfast love and had given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. So what we see here is, is the wisdom of Solomon, this wisdom coming to Solomon. So what is this wisdom? What, what is wisdom? Defined by the Bible, wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. It's having the understanding to choose the right or godly choice of action. It's, wisdom is discernment. It's not just knowing the right thing to do or knowing godly truth, but it's applying it. August Conkle says that wisdom is not simply the ability to make the right decisions or intelligence to know all the right things. Wisdom begins with the choice of learning to trust God, and God in turn makes provision for peace and prosperity. Wisdom is a choice to follow God with the knowledge that good choices will be made because of that choice. So what we see here is, is, is this wisdom, and we'll even see how, how Proverbs is structured in the same way. Wisdom in this, in this chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 3, is structured with two, different, two, two large pillars. One, wisdom is God-centered. Solomon's wisdom in this passage is God-centered. Proverbs, the wisdom that you and I received, it must be God-centered. And two, wisdom is practical. We see that wisdom is God-centered in, in uh, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3 in 1 Kings because it begins with the Lord. Wisdom begins with the Lord, and it's given from God. God is the, the source of it. Solomon's wisdom is, is from God, and it begins with God. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom is first and foremost God-centered. It begins with God, and it comes from God. Wisdom, wisdom by what it means in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is having a proper and right orientation with God, loving Him, trusting Him, beginning with Him in a proper perspective of who He is, of reverential fear and awe of who God is, and then an application of that. Solomon, we see that in Solomon's life, and Solomon appealed to God who is faithful to His covenant and steadfast in love. We see that in verse 6. The Lord revealed Himself in Exodus to, to Moses, saying that He is steadfast in love to thousands upon thousands, and that He, he no by, by no means clears the guilty. This is how God reveals himself, and so Solomon appeals to who God is, faithful to his covenant and steadfast in love. Verse 7, Solomon knew that he was appointed by God, that it wasn't, he didn't appoint himself. He knew it was nothing that he did to appoint himself, that it was God's gracious choice of him. 
It was God's choice of him prior to his even being born that this was of God. Solomon knew that he was totally unable to rule as king without God's direction in first, verses 7 through 8. He needed God's direction. Without it, he's not going to reign successfully. Verse 9, Solomon knew that these were God's people and not his, and therefore he needed to be able to properly discern what was good. He knew that, that it, his responsibility didn't end with him. These weren't his people. They, he wasn't just responsible for these people and he didn't have to answer to anyone. He, these were God's people. God was concerned with their behavior. God was concerned with their worship. God was concerned with their love for him. God was concerned with their knowing the difference between right and wrong. And therefore Solomon, as an under-shepherd, needed this wisdom and needed this direction from God in order to be able to properly discern and shepherd his people. These were God's people. So we see in in verses um, 16 through 29, the second thing that, that, and also we see with wisdom, that it's intensely practical. And that Solomon's wisdom is practical. We see this example of these two prostitutes coming up to Solomon in, in this passage. And they each, each had a baby. They had a baby within three days of each other. And one woman has a baby. She goes to sleep at night, rolls over on the baby and kills it. The other woman has a baby who's alive. She goes to sleep at night. And the woman whose baby was dead, she switched. So now the woman who had the dead baby has the baby who's alive. And the woman who had the baby who was alive now has the dead baby. Well, they come to Solomon, they come to Solomon in this court, and, and they're looking for answers. They're looking for, for what to do. This reminds me of a, a situation I ran into in my freshman year of college, and what happened was I went to sleep midday, and I woke up to the noise of my roommate arguing with this, this other guy, and they played intramural football, and so my roommate had these pretty expensive cleats, and he went out, he let them, he let them dry out in the hallway. They were stolen. He finds the guy wearing his cleats, and he confronts him, and they're, now they're in, you know, in our room in front of my bed, getting ready to fight, and I'm waking up. And so, needless to say, I did not execute Solomon-like wisdom. Um, and what happened, I wish I, in hindsight, I wish I would have taken a match or a knife and, and tried to take the cleats and see what they would have done then, but uh, I, I, it, I ended up breaking up a fight. But uh, if I had done that, I'm sure it would have been a little different. So um, that's what this, this, this passage always reminds me of. But when we take a look at this passage, we see the, the wisdom of Solomon. Because if you notice that with this situation, it's a she said, she said kind of thing. She took my baby. No, she killed her baby. It's a she said, she said. When we, when we enter these kind of uh, dilemmas of, of a he said, she said situation nowadays, we often shrug our shoulders when there's no evidence. There was no DNA testing here. And when we encounter these he said, she said situations and there's no evidence, we just kind of... We dismiss it. We, it gets dismissed in court. It gets a mistrial or something. And so what happens here is Solomon executes wisdom. He executes discernment because there's no law of Moses that says, now listen, when there are two prostitutes that come before you, what you have to do is you get a sword and you got, there's, there's no law. There's no law that, that addresses that. So he needs wisdom. He needs discernment and direction from God. So what does he do? What he does here is, is so just, is, I mean, read it like a human. Solomon appoints a, one of his servants to take a sword and go and divide the baby. I mean, not only does Solomon know the right thing to do, but he has the guts to do it. I don't know about you, but I sure enough would not take a sword and try to go and divide a baby because two mothers are arguing. I mean, I, that's a situation I don't want to deal with. But Solomon, he's, he's got this wisdom from God. And he exercises this discernment. And what happens is he, he ends up finding out the, the, the motives and the love of the mother whose child was alive. And it, as a result, the people stand in awe of Solomon's wisdom. 
So Solomon's wisdom was intensely practical. It mattered. It, it mattered for, to the practical daily lives of the people he was over. And wisdom for us is intensely practical. And wisdom is in the Bible and it's in Solomon's, it's in, it's in the life of Solomon and it'll be in our lives because God cares and God is concerned about the practical daily behaviors and things that go on in our lives. He's not so abstract and so transcendent that he's not concerned with those things and he has other more important things to worry about, but he is concerned with our relationships. He's concerned with our marriages. He's concerned with our parenting. He's concerned with our jobs, our careers, our behaviors, our attitudes, which is why Proverbs are are in the Bible. Wisdom is for our joy. Proverbs 3.13 says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. So today ask yourself, do you need wisdom? Do you need wisdom? As a follow-up, we could ask, are you humble enough to recognize your need for wisdom? See, Solomon knew that I cannot lead this empire. I do not know. If I don't have wisdom, I fail. What about you? Do you need wisdom? Do you recognize your need for God's direction and, and practical application of God's truth in your life? You may have a lot of information. You may have Google on your phone. You may have Oprah and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and all everyone else. And, but do you have truth, application of God's word for your life? James chapter 1, verse 5 instructs us. It, it tells us, it encourages us. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you need wisdom? Ask. Ask. Come in confidence because of the grace that you've been given by God. Ask for wisdom. He, he desires that you ask him for wisdom, for your joy. He'll give generously. You probably don't govern a kingdom, but wisdom is available for our relationships. It's for, available for our marriages, our parenting, our careers, and our, our souls. Summarized, wisdom is, is this, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. This is wisdom. Trust in God. Lean on him and don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him. Consult him. Ask. He will direct your paths. So we move on. We see the wealth of Solomon. I won't spend too much time on this, but we see in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 28, we read about Solomon's wealth, which was given to him as, uh, as a benefit, as a result of his asking for wisdom. The Lord said he would bless him with riches and with honor. He says this in 1 Kings 3.13. And so just some points about Solomon's wealth explained in detail from chapter 4, verses 20 through 28. We see that the people were as many as the sands of the sea. That they were eating, drinking, and happy in verse 20. They ruled over all other kingdoms. This wasn't just a, a good little empire that they, you know, they, they had some good days. They had gone through some struggle, and now they're, you know, they're doing well for themselves. No, they were number one. Number one internationally known. Israel was at the peak of its day. They ruled over all of the kingdoms. They were at peace. They had this, this supersized army. They had this, this, this multitude of armies that they never even had to use because there was peace. They lived in safety, verse 25 tells us. Verse 27 says that they, ne- they let nothing be lacking, nothing lacking. Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses Verse 15 tells us that silver and gold were as common as stone. I mean, think about that. Silver and gold were as common as stone. What wealth? 
So we see here in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2, it's just a, a fulfillment of it. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. Israel was rejoicing because they had a, a great king, a righteous king, who obeyed and loved the Lord and, and exercised godly wisdom. They were rejoicing. How much more can we rejoice because we have a righteous king? So Israel is experiencing a, a king and a kingdom like never before. They're experiencing prosperity, peace, a good economy, a good military, wise leadership. Solomon is a king to be admired. He's a great king. He's great. He's wise. He's powerful. He's wealthy, but he's also sinful. And as great as this kingdom is and as, as good as this kingdom is going right now, it's only, it's only a candle in the sun compared to the kingdom that, that the Lord speaks to David about in 2 Samuel that will be established forever. The kingdom of, of Christ. So Solomon, as great as he is, he, he's still sinful. And we see the not-so-greatness of Solomon. We see in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, that he marries this, this Pharaoh's daughter. And we start to see some of the glimpses of Solomon's sinfulness. He forms an alliance with Egypt after marrying Pharaoh's daughter. So we see a scripture that was mentioned last week. It was Deuteronomy chapter 17. And it, it, it says this. That the king, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So Solomon establishes this alliance with Egypt after God has said, don't ever go that way again. You can imagine Solomon just, just thinking about this because the kings had to write their own copy of the law. He probably said, ah, well, we're not moving the kingdom there. We're not setting up another, you know, smaller, smaller kingdom there. We're, you know, just, it's just an alliance. It's just so, so there's peace. And it, it's, it's a small thing in his eyes. But it's a breach of the commandment of the Lord. And you can start to see Solomon's heart start begin to begin to wonder, just kind of wonder slowly after his own desires, after his own ambitions. Amidst all the wisdom and prosperity, there are signs that Solomon's heart began to take a second glance in wanting to be like everybody else. So for us, like Solomon, our hearts are, are prone to the same thing because we are sinful. They're prone to slowly wander after our own desires and pursuits over God, even when God has blessed us with so much. What are those things for you? They may seem harmless. They may seem beneficial. You know, it's a small thing. It's just, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not, not actually all the way in Egypt. I'm not, I'm not putting the people in slavery again. What are those things for you? They may seem harmless or even beneficial in your own eyes, but, but what does God say about them? So now we move on to the last point, the one greater than Solomon. We see that as great as Solomon was, he was like a, a kid in a Michael Jordan jersey trying, who makes a few baskets versus the real thing who scores over 50,000 points. He's a candle in the sun. It doesn't even compare to the kingdom that, that Christ has, to the kingdom that God gives his son forever, that will be established forever. Matthew 12, verse 42 says, the queen of the south, Jesus is talking here, and he's talking to those who are listening to his message but are rejecting it. They're rejecting it. They don't want anything to do with Christ's message. And so he says to them, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear, hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is this? How could this 30-something-year-old Jewish carpenter make this kind of statement? 
that, he, that something greater than Solomon is here. Well, you and I know in, in hindsight and seeing his perfect life and perfect death and his, his true kingship, we know that this is really an understatement. Something way greater than Solomon comes with Christ. But for these people who were listening to him, what, what is something greater than Solomon? I mean, Jesus isn't walking around in, in, in these crazy robes and everywhere he walks, it's, it's gold streets and all. It, it's not that. What, what does he mean by greater than Solomon? So let's look. One, he means a greater kingdom. He means a greater wisdom. And he means a greater wealth. So we see a greater kingdom. That Christ's reign is characterized as a greater kingdom. He has a greater kingdom than Solomon ever had. Because he, like Solomon's obedience and Solomon's justice, Christ has a perfect obedience. See, Solomon started out obeying the laws and the, the rules of the Lord, but he didn't obey them perfectly. There were some of these things, like we just mentioned, his flaws that he didn't obey fully in. But Christ, the king, he obeys perfectly. He pleases the Father. And Solomon, Solomon couldn't, couldn't obey the law for his people. He had to give them the law and esteem the law and hope that they would obey and respond well. But Christ, he can obey the law for his people. For you and I, if we trust in his finished work, he obeys the law in our place. Not just for himself, but for you and for me. So that when God sees us, he sees that we have obeyed the law perfectly because of the substitutionary death of Christ. Next thing we see is the perfect execution of justice. We see the perfect execution of justice because Solomon executed justice with, with his wisdom and, and, and tried to execute it as, as best as he could. And he executed over a kingdom that was small in a, in a localized region and, and it wasn't on everybody. But Christ, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 33 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Matthew 16, 16 27 says, For the Son of Man is, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. Solomon might have judged the kingdom. He might have judged a, a few peoples who were many in number, but Christ judges everyone. Christ judges everyone, and he knows everything. He will execute swift and proper justice on that great day where he judges the hearts of men and gives to us according to what we have done. Some mercy and grace into everlasting life and some judgment and punishment and everlasting, everlasting destruction. He has the perfect execution of justice. Next, we see a greater wisdom. Jesus is greater than Solomon because of his wisdom. Solomon was, was given wisdom and he became wise. You see in 1 Kings chapter 3, the Lord came to Solomon and gave him wisdom. And then in the application, he became wise and executed wisdom properly. Solomon was given wisdom and this was, it was great. He executed wisdom, but Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom. He is the fullness of wisdom. The wisdom that God gave Solomon was, the, was, was Christ. It's, it's, Christ is the wisdom of God. First, Kings chapter, First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24 tells us this. That when the Corinthians were searching for this wisdom and this philosophy, and they were trying to become wise in their own age, that Paul encouraged them and told them that you have the wisdom of God. 
Christ is the wisdom of God. And so when you received the gospel, when you believed upon the finished work of Christ and received him, you, he became for you wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. Solomon could speak wisdom to his people. He could talk wisdom to, to prostitutes, to, to kings, to rulers, to, to wise men, to philosophers. He could speak wisdom to his people. But he couldn't become wisdom for them. Christ became wisdom for his people. And shortly after, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says that Christ became wisdom for us. He became, he was made unto us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification. You and I, we were, we were totally unwise. We were fools. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, darkened in our understanding, darkened in our minds, alienated from the life of God. We were dead. Christ makes us alive and he is made unto us wisdom so that now when God looks at you, when God sees you because of Christ, he sees you as wise. He sees you as wise in your obedience to the gospel. The wisest decision you could ever make in your life, you are now seen as wise because of Christ. Next thing, Solomon's wisdom was finite and limited. Solomon didn't know everything. As much as he knew, he didn't know everything. It was limited. He, he knew certain things about uh, certain ages and certain, certain things. And we see, and even in Ecclesiastes, he, he admits that he, he doesn't know everything. But in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 and 3. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you need wisdom, don't look outside of Christ because it's not wisdom. Christ, in Christ, there is wisdom, the fullness of wisdom. The fullness of the treasures of knowledge are found in him. He is Lord of creation and he is Lord of redemption. It is all in him. So Christ has a, a greater kingdom. He has a greater wisdom and he has a greater wealth. Jesus is greater than Solomon because he possesses greater wealth. Now you might say, well, well what do you mean Jesus possesses greater? Are we talking about money here? And there, there are people who conclude that, that if, if because Solomon had wealth, and, uh, that, that, that Jesus would have greater wealth, and so therefore I'm supposed to have money and wealth. I'm supposed to be financially prosperous. And because Solomon had this wealth, so can I. That's not, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about him, himself being greater than Solomon. He's not talking about this monetary and material wealth. He's talking about something, something far greater. What's he talking about? Solomon's wealth was, was earthly and was therefore temporary. See, none of it exists today. You and I are not benefiting off of Solomon's wealth. I wish we were. I wish we could, but we, we don't. There are, our streets are not paved with gold. Uh, we do not experience the things that Solomon experienced or plenty of this plenteous stuff. But, but, but Christ, he gives so much more. His wealth is not limited. His wealth is not temporary. It's everlasting. See, Solomon and, and you and I, they had this wealth, they had this money, they had these material things in order to, and then they obtained joy by it. They obtained peace. They obtained prosperity by it. But Christ, Christ is those things. He is peace. He is joy. He is happiness. It says in Colossians 1.19 that in him is the fullness of the Godhead. What does that mean? In him is the fullness of joy. It is the fullness of peace, the fullness of righteousness. If you need these things, Christ gives these things to us. The fullness of these things are found in him. You and I use money and go try to, to spend money to, to get these things, but Christ is these things, and if we have him, we have these things. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
Think about that. Not just on earth, every spiritual blessing, on every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has given to us in Christ. We have joy. We have peace. We have life. If you need it, ask. It is in Christ, the fullness of it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Jesus who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. Is this, is this talking about money? Is Jesus rich? He had money and he became poor so that he could give me money? No, it's, that's, that's, that's a very limited and trite. Jesus had the fullness of God. He had infinite joy and infinite fellowship and infinite delight and happiness and peace with God from before the foundations of the world. And he gives that up. He becomes poor for your sake so that you could experience this joy and this peace and this fullness. It's yours. He was rich and became poor, dies in your place for your sins, and was resurrected so that you might become rich, so that you might have this peace and this joy and this life forever. This is why Jesus has, is greater than Solomon. He gives so much greater. He's the true king whose throne is established forever. Yes, 2 Samuel was talking about Solomon. It was talking about his immediate reign and rule, but it was talking about something far greater as well. It was talking about Christ, whose kingdom is established forever. Will you receive his kingship? Will you believe and trust in his, his substitutionary death for you, dying in your place for your sins, so that you, he could be made into you wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and that he could bless you with joy, peace, life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, continue to just probe our hearts and Continue to help us see the beauty and the, the grace that is found in your son who is a greater king, who has greater wisdom and who has greater wealth. May we receive this. May we partake of this. Lord, help us to come in confidence asking you according to your word for wisdom. Help us to obey your laws and your precepts and delight in you above all things. Lord, for those who may be wrestling here, who may not, may not know or may not, may not believe or trust in the claims that Christ makes about himself, we see in Matthew 12, Lord, help them to wrestle with that. And, and Lord, he asked that you would, you, would, you would show yourself to them in, in your beauty and your glory through, through the, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things, and may you continue to be glorified in, in your name. Amen.